I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me in today's episode are Emmett and Anne-Marie from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today we're talking about Amazon's acquisition of iRobot. We look through Lemonade and Beyond Mate's earnings reports, and Emma talks us through the latest meme stock rally. You know the story by now. I want to remind you that if you, we have an extended version of Stock Club that you can listen to exclusively in the My Wall Street app for free. At the end of the show, Amory and Emma are going to pitch two companies to me that they have their eye on. I'll pick my favorite, and in the extended episode, you can hear the full discussion we have as we try to figure out if it's a good investment or not. There's a link to the episode in the notes of this show, so if you want to hear the extended elevator pitch, just tap that to head over to My Wall Street. Anne-Marie Emmett, welcome to Stock Club this week. Um, I hope you've been keeping up with all the autonomous driving videos I've been sending into Slack <laughs> this week. It's not been a great week for the industry. The first was a, a cop pulling over a driverless car, which is some weird dystopian nightmare or potential buddy cop movie. And the second was a Tesla absolutely doming a dummy child in a brake test. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that You one. didn't That's see terrible. that one. No. Yeah, it's I'll, I'll send I'll send it to you. It's like the the size of maybe a four foot child, and the I think the Tesla I think the Tesla accelerated. I think it was <laughs> I think it was like declining population, and just rammed that child. And all and it was in comparison with a bunch of other like big reputable car, cars, and they all stopped and recognized the child. And the Tesla was just like, nope. <laughs> yeah. It's not a great not a great time to be in the autonomous driving industry. What are your thoughts, Emmett? We short everything. Um, I'm actually more interested that this all went to TikTok, I presume, first, as opposed to main major news channels. Yeah, back to what we were saying last week, TikTok is going to eat the world. As for autonomous driving, you know, um, I wonder would the cops have been as surprised as they were in the video that I watched had it been a Tesla? Is it just that mm. they're not used to seeing a non-Tesla driving autonomously? Yeah, it was a cruise, isn't it? The yeah. G- GM's division. Mm, yeah. Oh right. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. It was interesting though. They uh, said the reason they pulled it over was it didn't have its headlights on, which actually isn't the fault of the AI because those cars have like automatic headlights that should come on when it senses that it's dark enough. So it it was um, whoever set the car up must have hit the um, hit the hit the knob to turn off the automatic headlights. So that's what happened. And why was it out on its own anyway? What was it just going for a nice little drive or was it something else? I think it else? was it was trying <laughs> it out. It was it was collecting this is it, isn't it? There's a bunch of yeah. like full on autonomous taxis around. Yeah. Like mm. yeah. they're very I think they're very localized. I think they're in like Arizona or somewhere. But Appar- apparently Vegas. Uh, Vegas be, you were saying, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they have mm. um there's like tens of thousands of them just floating around Vegas, which I don't know. Like I said to Mike, I was like, "Is that the most challenging environment to be testing a car in? Like, isn't Vegas like three roads?" And yeah, but also like, that's the, it. The chance of hitting a drunk pedestrian are like a thousand times. Yeah, higher. and you know what? There are no children there, so they can <laughs> go as fast <laughs> as they want. So there's no Teslas to dome them. Yeah. Okay. Very good. <laughs> we better move on before we start getting incriminating here. 
Um, news dropped this week, or last late last week, of Amazon acquiring the rumba maker iRobot for $1.7 billion. The wildly popular robot vacuum, as well as its less known robotic mopper called the Brava, uh, are two kind of major stalwarts of these, I would say, robotic industry, robotic revolution. And the deal is going to greatly expand Amazon's smart home product suite, which includes Amazon Echo devices. We know them as Alexas, as well as a st- smart doorbell maker Ring. Emmett, you're a longtime iRobot investor. What, what do you think about this deal? Do you think the 22% premium is enough or has Amazon scooped a bit of a deal at an opportune time? Uh, This is a very interesting chapter, I would say, of my investing life, Mike, because I have not only been a loyal iRobot customer for years, but I've been a shareholder for maybe 10 or 12 years. And it's one of the first stocks I recommended in Horizon, which, as you know only too well, is the follow me service I run here at my Wall Street. Even though I suspected Apple would buy iRobot for the name alone. This is an obvious enough buyout when uh, prices of companies everywhere are just in the dumps at the moment. Uh, To date, like Amazon has acquired, I think, almost 100 companies, can you believe? And this particular one makes sense because it puts the company even deeper inside our homes, if that was at all possible. Uh, their, Their biggest acquisition, Amazon's biggest acquisition was uh was Whole Foods for $13.7 billion, and that was in 2017. Second place, uh, they paid $8.5 billion for MGM last year. And in third place, One Medical about a month ago for something like $4 billion. So this is actually their fourth biggest acquisition. And the question is, who got a better deal? Because invariably, when somebody sells, one side get the better deals. Well, truly, I believe that the age of robotics as a service hasn't even begun. And iRobot has, or or at least had, leadership position to really grow into a world that wants nothing to do with mundane tasks like cleaning your floor or mowing your lawn or whatever it is. But uh, I was a shareholder until earlier this week when I sold, prior to which I had planned to hold for another 15 years. So I absolutely do think that Amazon got a deal. I mean, they bought it when, uh, like so many others, it was just crushed. Yeah, and like I I imagine in your fairly long investing career, this isn't the first time a stock you own has been acquired. How How is your general feeling towards this? Like, is in, in iRobot's case, it seems that it was very very the right time for Amazon to come in and probably the wrong time for an iRobot investor to sell. I in how do you feel about acquisitions? Well I have actually some of my data here in front of me, Mike, which again uh I detailed in the Horizon service. So between nineteen ninety-nine, January nineteen ninety-nine and December twenty seventeen, I made a total of four hundred and fifty-one stock purchases in my stock portfolio, which averages out at about two per month uh, for 18 years. So for almost two decades, I was a very active buyer and still am. Um, Now, 214 of those 451 purchases, or 47%, were related to companies that went on to either be acquired or go bust. Okay, so stick with me. Now, the majority, the vast majority were acquired at a premium to the price I paid. So in that 18 year period, 171 
of the 214 buys that I mentioned were acquired. So I have had a lot of stocks that I've bought over the years taken out of my folio with uh, very little or zero influence from me. And, you know, I don't actually have any feeling about it, Mike. I'm, I'm supposed to say that it's terrible and that these things hurt long-term returns. Um, and, you know, I truly wish it never been acquired. Uh, but that isn't quite true. Now, there are exceptions. Um, Mazor Robotics in more recent times is one that I never wish was bought out. But it's like a case of, oh, boo-hoo, my, my wallet's too small for my 50s and my diamond shoes are too tight. You know, uh, that's a friend's quote, by the way. Like, if you're a long-term investor... You know, stocks being bought out of your portfolio is absolutely inevitable, absolutely inevitable. And I think we spoke about this on Stock Club probably two years ago. I think Rory detailed that out of the My Wall Street shortlist, there was about 13 companies acquired. And that's that was some pace of acquisition. I think we're seeing an uptick in acquisitions now while the market is absolutely in the dumps and, you know, even Unity Software is acquired and we see lots of other ones. But yeah, to your question, how do I feel about it? I feel it's inevitable and I'm one for accepting the inevitable, not fighting it. Mm -hmm. And then for a stock like iRobot that's kind of been suffering from falling sales and supply chain issues, is is accepting an acquisition like this the easy way out? I mean, the stock is down as much as 70% from all-time highs right before the acquisition. So where does mm. it kind of, is, is, this, is this the easy route for iRobot? Very possibly. Uh, there's no doubt that cheaper substitutions made it difficult for iRobot to differentiate. And when Amazon came knocking, you have to figure that they're entering the market you're in. <laughs> I don't really know how that engagement began, but uh, if Amazon come along and say, we're considering buying you for fast entry into a market, the alternative route is not all that pleasant. And I, and I happen to, I very much like the founding CEO of, of iRobot, Colin Angle. He's a straight shooter and a decent person. Uh, I think he's a, he's a good one, but I do think the business didn't innovate at the pace at which I thought it should have. I mean, I mentioned I'm a, I'm a product user for years, and I, I think my very first iRobot, which I bought at least 10 years ago, and the one I have now, which is the latest, they look the same. They, you know, they do the same thing. The latest one is quieter. It's a little bit smarter, but it just doesn't feel like it's 10 years further down the, the track. And and in that 10-year uh, period, uh, the cheap knockoffs from, from, well, very many different players have entered the market. Mm. And you could say that as well, but they kind of had a failed uh, lawnmower product as well in Terra that yeah. never really got off the ground too, didn't they? So yeah. Yeah. yeah, I still think now I, I'd have to check, Mike, but I think that that's still. Has, did they ever launch it? Sorry, I've just they never, drawn they, a blank they, on they that. never launched it. I think you got oh, they never launched it. Yeah, and then they went mm. through all these supply chain issues. So I think oh, it was yes, well on the back yeah. foot. And I think John right. Deere beat them to the punch. John Deere has an, is coming out with an autonomous. Um, yeah, yeah. So. Well, there's one over over in this part of the world in Ireland. The the name is a for me almost unpronounceable. It's like a Swedish Susquehanna or something like that. And these autonomous lawnmowers are guided by wires that you have to put all the way around your garden, which isn't very um, smart. Which I what I liked about iRobot's promise is you just you, you left it to just, it. <laughs> You're just like letting the dog yeah. out of the back door and just go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah do your own business. Yeah. yeah, and then. From an Amazon's perspective, this acquisition is almost as much about iRobot's data as it is about the hardware. And if you don't know about 
iRobot or the Roombas, basically what they do is they create detailed maps of people's homes so they can avoid obstacles. So this little Hoover is going around, it can go around the couch pretty much. This gets a bit kind of icky when we talk about Amazon having that kind of access to information and that personal data about people's houses. What do we see Amazon kind of planning on doing with this information? And is should a company like Amazon have this information? Mm. Let's just stand back for a moment. For a very large portion of the developed world, Amazon knows who's at their door with their connected camera ring, which you mentioned, which they bought in 2012 for 1.2 billion. They know what people say, they know what people buy, and they know what people search for, thanks to Alexa. And now at iRobot, they have access to an existing fleet of constantly scanning robots. So this is the Google Maps of inside your house. So just speaking from a user perspective, every time my Roomba finishes a job in my home, it sends a map up to the mothership, it uploads the map, I, I can't remember what I clicked, and it shows me on my phone uh, a floor layout of my house that honestly a good architect would struggle to draw. So um, really, currently, these maps are only accessible by iRobot, but any month now that data will fully belong to Amazon. I was reading, I was reading that when their spokesperson was asked about the potential use of this data, and the storage of map data, they said, well, the deal hasn't yet been closed with iRobots, so we don't have any details to share. And then the spokesperson went on with the usual claptrap about not selling customer data to third parties or using customer data for purposes to which customers haven't consented, etc. But seriously, like, who knows what they've consented to? I, I bought my kids a subscription to Club Penguin for the iPad about 10 years ago. And at that time, for all that I know, no, I signed away my life. Like when you're faced with T's and C's after buying something, you just want to get out of the way. You just go, yeah, 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 go, go, go. Especially when you've two small men uh, waiting for a new app, I might add. But anyway, with all of that said, we have a choice. You know, you can either decide there's a dark, is it Dark Mirrors, the Netflix show? Dark Mirror? Was Black, it Mirror. Black Mirror? Black, Black Mirror. Sorry, Black Mirror. So maybe there's a Black Mirror angle. But you have to assume good intent, or else you may as well just crawl back into 1970s and listen to you, you know your music on vinyl and use paper maps and mop your floor with the uh, mop, <laughs> or use a Kodak camera. I don't know what else. The subscription to Encyclopedia Britannica. Like this is just the way it goes. And if you want to, uh, if you want to use the device, you just got to buy into. That's just its progress. So I, I'm not bothered. You know, past my mind. Yeah, sure. Now Amazon are going to know what inside my house looks like. Yeah, big deal. It's a, it's an Irish house. They, they, you know, they get that. Amory, do you have thoughts? I hope a um, more cynical view, maybe. Yeah, I have a more cynical view. I like the idea, though, of, of Amazon having to look inside an Irish house and going, geez, it's very damp in here. Might need to, <laughs> <laughs> might need to, might need to fix some it's of this. covered um, in soot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, I read an article in The Verge that talked about, oh, the the Roomba will be able to give like context to other Amazon smart home devices. And then it went on to give an example of, oh, I was like, what type of context do these devices need? Like, why does this the the Alexa need to know what room it's in? And, and the example they gave was oh, oh, maybe a smart air purifier. If it could tell what room in your house it was in, it would more effectively work. You know, it, it can be a little bit louder in the kitchen than it can be in a bedroom. If it's in the kitchen, it would be aware, oh, something in this room is more likely to produce a pollutant, so I should work a bit harder oh, I'm more likely to be in a room that's producing a lot of humidity, X, Y, Z. And mm. for about a split second, I thought, okay, 
<laughs> Maybe that's a good idea. And well, then I, I, had I think uh, does an eye robot own uh, an air purifier? They do, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And, and and for a moment I was like, yeah, that's 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 a reasonable use case. That takes some thinking out of the way. And then I thought, do you know what? How difficult is it to adjust the knob on the air purifier when you move it from room to room? I was like, all this does is cut out maybe the five minutes you will spend passively looking uh-huh. at the air purifier instructions. So mm. I have yet to see a use case in which I would be thrilled that Amazon has the complete layout of my of my home and it will make my life easier. But I'm sure that they will come up with something. I mean... Another speculative idea was that it would help improve the mapping technology that's in the robot that Amazon owns called Astro. He's kind of like a little wheelie, wally looking robot that can cruise around your house who serves no purpose. And he's like a thousand dollars. Serves no purpose. He's a spy. That's his purpose. Oh, of course. Yes, of course. (laughs) It's a thousand dollars to bring a spy into your home. You think they would like sell it at cost, at least reduce that a bit. But um, Well, they did with the Echo, by the way. Yeah. That's the ultimate spy, if you ask well, the, me. That's the, one well, the creepy, device. The creepy thing about the Echo is that the Echo is always on to hear its yeah. name. So, like, mm. as in it hears everything, mm. and when it says Alexa, it turns on. Yeah. Whereas people just assume mm. when you say Alexa, it turns it on. But that's yeah. A, no, yeah. That's, that's another. But there, there's rush. another use case I was reading about mapping the Wi-Fi signal strength in your home, which is actually uh, a real-life problem for me because we keep our room about one end of the house where we have a, a separate Wi-Fi network. And if it leaves that Wi-Fi network, it suddenly, it's gone off the grid and you can't tell it to go back. First world problems, eh? Hashtag really yeah. first world problems, yeah. My magic robot vacuum gets lost at the, at the other end of the big house I live in. Uh, I always like those stories, though. You know, when they, like, get out of the house, when it's like my room, I left my back door open and the Roomba escaped and it just ran away. Where did it go? All, it's never found. Yeah, sometimes they just vanish. Like, the Roomba must be like, Jesus, they're very long hallway. Just keep going. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> this place is filthy. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the West Wing. Like. <laughs> Um, yeah so I don't know there's no like interesting use case so far but I'm sure we'll stay tuned I'm sure Amazon will make something up that we will all suddenly need yeah well I'm sure the world's biggest retailer will have enough information to do something with it a little bit spooky but we'll move on I suppose Uh, moving on then to earnings Emmett you got a chance to look at Lemonade's report from earlier this week the stock got a welcome boost Uh, talk us through it well what a lovely name for what I believe is a wonderful business and Mike I'm going to do what I always do and assume that not all of our listeners know what Lemonade is or who they are. I'm just going to give a three minute description, Mike. So Lemonade, actually, I'm only 60 seconds. Lemonade is an insurance provider that removes customer pain points through AI powered software or an AI powered app. And it is a beautiful app and it's an interface for interacting efficiently for something that certainly in my life's perspective is one of the clunkiest most heartbreaking interaction still in existence, which is calling your insurance folks for something. It's just, oh, it's painful. Um, So Lemonade's mission is to transform insurance from a necessary evil into a social good. And companies, uh, company co-founders Daniel Schreiber, and I think it's uh, Shai Winninger, want Lemonade to replace legacy insurance carriers that just can't adapt to the changing times. And what I would say in conclusion to me telling people what uh, Lemonade do is go to lemonade.com backslash blog backslash our lemon stand, our lemonade stand, or better still, just Google our lemonade stand and read the letter from the founders. And by the end of it, 
I guarantee you, you'll go, yes, that is the character of the type of company that I want to own. And it's a, it, it, I have to say, I am in great admiration of the business, although it has not been a bowl of roses for the last year. No way. But anyway, on to Q2. Is that your question, Mike? I've forgotten. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's yeah, a good backstory. It's a good backstory. Go on. Yeah. Okay. So Q2, well, so Q2 reported revenue is up 77% to 50 million. And that's the rugged revenue growth, consistent revenue growth, growth is the most important factor the most important factor for long time for long term share price appreciation so it was up 77% enforced premiums uh, which is the total amount of premiums it has under contract was up 54% year over year to about 458 million dollars gross earned premium which is premiums taken in the quarter was up 60% premiums per customer was up 18% to 290 books. So they're they're very effective at upselling and total customers increased 31% to 1.58 million people. And then finally, loss ratio for the quarter was 86%, which is up, not good, from last year's figure of 74%. However, it has been on a decline over the last couple of quarters, thankfully. So for Q3 management, expects gross earned premium of something like 130 million dollars uh, revenue of something like 65 million dollars 63 65 million dollars and so on but it was it was a great report mike that's that's what i'd say yeah one thing that stood out to me was management's commitment to achieving profitability within with its existing capital and employing a more sustainable growth strategy for a company mm. that for a company that's burning cash like lemonade has since its ipo this has to be good news right Oh, yeah. And the company ended a quarter with a billion in cash and, and cash equivalents. So to have a business that is in a period such as the one we're all living through at the moment with a billion cash at its disposal, which management believe will get them all the way through to cash flow break even and profitability is a great thing. Yeah. And then it discussed as well the closure of the Metro Mile acquisition. So this is kind of a big deal, especially within Horizon. I know you own both companies. Mm. How, yeah. how is this going to shape Lemonade's car insurance product? Yeah, so Metro Mile's business was uh, you only pay for what you use. And I, I don't remember the exact figure, but I think it said that two thirds of motorists don't use their car to a level that justifies the insurance they're paying. So there was a big opportunity to have two thirds of motorists pay less. And the way they did that was you, you know, plugged a dongle into your car and it measured you know, how many miles you, you were driving. So that was Metro Miles' uh, product, uh, is Metro Miles' product, but now fully owned by by Lemonade. And this allowed Lemonade to absolutely slingshot into a whole new area of insurance that has its own competent, core competencies and its own challenges and its own licensing arrangements. And I think they went from one market to 49 markets uh, overnight. They they got more cash by acquiring Metro Mile than they actually paid in shares. Uh, I don't have the details here, but certainly uh, it's a great fit. The acquisition was done at a lousy time for Metro Mile shareholders, unfortunately. Um, but certainly I think the combined entity is a is a is a absolute force to be reckoned with over the long term because of the character of the founders and what they're out to do. And and I think one of the lines they say in that letter that I, I suggest people go and read is that they're long-term patient or they're, they ignore the short-term, they look to the long-term goal of radically disrupting the market in which they operate and they're doing a great job. Very good. So long-term, very positive on Lemonade. Big fan, yeah. 
Anne-Marie, then, you were looking at something maybe on the other end of the scale, uh, Beyond Meat, and things are surprisingly not great. Dodgy dodgy sausages aside, what's gone wrong here with the, with the <laughs> meat alternative? Dodgy, did they have dodgy sausages? No, there's a no. famous photo of a uh, very fat. Oh, say no more. Yeah, yeah. say no more. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't a great quarter for them overall. They had some kind of disappointing news. Uh, revenue declined ever so slightly. It was down about 1.5%. This is maybe the third or fourth quarter where revenue is virtually flat for the company. Um, and margins are just getting absolutely hammered. It's not a not a great time to be beyond meat. Um, because they had to write off some stuff um, this quarter. And they were talking about they're, they're pushing into beef jerky, like a beyond meat beef jerky. Apparently that stuff is really expensive um to produce and and who knew and so uh their gross margin this quarter got pushed to negative 4.2 percent which that stings so yeah it wasn't great they also in their um ceo comments for this quarter uh ethan brown said that because of inflation they're seeing more and more people go back to even traditional meat because the story for beyond meat for so long was oh we think that we can get this on price parity with meat um as we know beyond meat burgers are more expensive than than ground beef or more expensive than buying prepackaged burgers they're getting there they're investing in infrastructure they're trying to bring the price down but you know it's very difficult to justify to a consumer in an inflation environment that they should be spending more if you know, I'd say if they don't have a moral conviction about about being vegetarian or vegan, I, I, like it's it's difficult to go to them and say, please pay double for your ground beef that you're going to put in your lasagna. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's a uh, it's it's hard out there for Beyond Meat. You know, it seems. But to you be, know, Anne Marie, sending sending people back to eating meat from vegetarianism, it's not really yeah. not really a good look. I was Sorry, reading I'm last night. Uh, a headline popped up on my phone from the Wall Street Journal to say that. The number of expensive cuts or the volume of expensive cuts of real meat uh, bought have has dropped dramatically. So people are moving towards the bottom end of the the beef market. So there's it it effectively is a compression into the middle. You know, people who are p- buying premium uh, meat substitutes and then premium meat are all getting back into the let's say the meat they were raised on. You know? Yeah, hmm. yeah, and and, and that's kind of. What I would have an issue with Beyond Meat is where where is this company's moat? Where are its barriers to entry? What's stopping a huge company like Tyson come in and and do the same thing? Yeah, I mean, you can argue that the 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 moat is taste or its distribution. I think Beyond Meat was kind of first on the scene. Um, I think we would like to credit some of it with like the first mover advantage and maybe the initial brand recognition that they were able to build. Um, in 2020, it was estimated that Beyond Meat controlled about 7% of the global plant-based meat market, but like their competition is just stacked against them. Like if you like if you want to talk about really popular um, non-meat options in the United States, you talk about, oh, Morningstar Farms, which just happens to be owned by Kellogg's. Or you talk about Raised and Rooted, which is owned by Tyson. Or uh, you talk about Simple Truth, which is owned by Kroger. And, you know, like we can argue, oh, Beyond Meat as a startup has a great distribution, but there's no way they have better distribution than Kellogg's. Like that's a very, very high mountain to climb. And then in addition to that, like they have this great branding. I think they're quite recognizable. They've had, you know, partnerships with KFC. 
and with McDonald's, and I think that's brought their branding to the forefront of many people's minds when they think of meat alternatives. But um, they actually have a bit of a controversy going on with that at the minute. They're being sued. Uh, this was announced in June that they are that there's a potential that they lied about the amount of protein in the product. Um, the lawsuit says that Beyond Meat may have been grossly overestimating the amount of protein in it by as much as 30 percent, which you can't be a meat alternative and lie about the amount of protein in the product. So they're just getting caught up in a few things at the minute that um, – really oh that just makes the long-term outlook not look not look all that great to be honest mm. have you I guys don't. tried a beyond meat product at all no, no i haven't not beyond meat mm. i have actually uh there's a restaurant chain in ireland called eddie rockets and mm, yeah. they have beyond meat burgers and i tried them once or twice i really liked it i thought it was a good substitute and when that's everywhere i'm probably going to just make the switch yeah but would you yeah. be ready to pay one and a half times or two times the price of a normal burger for it? Um, I probably would. Yeah, I yeah. probably would. If I made the decision, you know, that my life is changing. And I saw a video yesterday of this guy who's 100 years old and he attributes his uh, longevity and good health to a plant-based diet and a non-red meat diet. You know, it kind of gets you thinking when you're in your late 40s, maybe I should just do something about this whole charade right now. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and Amory, you mentioned partnerships there. Uh, Beyond Meat had a trial with McDonald's, the McPlant, which I've actually just seen in McDonald's restaurants in Ireland recently, uh, which yeah. is just a Beyond Meat burger, as you expect. But this kind of didn't end out too well, did it? Uh, what's what's happening there? Yeah, so uh, the kind of important context is when they came to the agreement in early 2021, they initially trialed the McPlant in uh, like two dozen locations in the United States that were strategically picked, like ones where you would expect vegetarians to be, you know, New York, San Francisco, Portland, that type of thing. That trial was initially successful, and so they rolled it out to 600 locations in the United States, um, and that trial concluded last week, and um, it looks as of now, that it will not be renewed for the United States. However, neither McDonald's nor Beyond Meat have uh, actually commented on it. Um, But a couple analysts went and did surveying over the last few months. They talked to McDonald's employees at a variety of locations, and most of the employees were saying that the demand kind of just wasn't there for a plant-based option. Um, That being said, it is worth remembering that McDonald's and Beyond Meat have a three-year contract in place, and it seems that things are going well in international locations. So the McPlant is now a permanent menu item in the United Kingdom. Um, They are expanding out trial periods in Sweden, Denmark, Austria, the Netherlands, and Australia. There's, it's now in 270 locations in Australia. Um, and to be honest, part of this could just be the percentage of vegans and vegetarians that are occurring in these countries' populations. It's estimated that about 5% of the American population is vegetarian. In Europe and Australia, it's looking more about 10%. And I'd also just say probably culturally, these regions are more likely to have people who would be I guess you could call them flexitarians, like people who eat meat, but, you know, three or four times a week are trying to not eat meat. So they would be tempted. Oh, yeah, I'll have a veggie burger when I go to McDonald's. Um, In my view, this is really just going to impact Beyond Meat's ability to maybe attract new buyers because they were having this really great marketing that was coming through the exposure they were getting with the McDonald's deal in the United States. You know, if you look at the the advertisements they were using, the posters they were using, anytime the McPlant was featured, Beyond Meat's branding was on it. I think it was that dual purpose of McDonald's and new Beyond Meat was recognizable. Then it also Beyond Meat was getting recognition in places it hadn't previously. Um, it also should probably knock the domestic food service revenue that Beyond Meat um, 
they break out everything in food service and um, in store sales. And that was already down 2.4% in the United States uh, in terms of revenue this quarter. I would expect that to fall further um, in the coming quarters because uh, 600 American restaurants, like it, it's not insignificant in terms of their, their global mm. footprint. Did you just invent the word flexitarian? No. Okay. No. <laughs> no. Like, come on. I like, that was no. great. No. I heard uh, one bad and flexitarian. As somebody uh, who claims they're an introvert and an, and an extrovert is an ambivert. And I know somebody who's an introvert and they said only an extrovert would actually say that. So. <laughs> okay. Moving on then. Uh, don't forget that if you listen to this podcast on the My Wall Street app, you get the full version of one of our elevator pitches at the end of this episode. It's completely free to listen to episodes of stock club in the my wall street app all you need to do is download my wall street on ios or android and create an account there's a link in the note for today's show so just tap that and enjoy more stock club right so uh mailback we got a few questions in concerning the revival of meme stocks this week which is always great to see uh the week kicked off on monday with bed bath and beyond amc and gamestop all soaring emmett emmett can you kind of explain to our listeners what's happening here and why Mm. why this is (laughs) Why this is a thing. Yeah, actually, and just on July 27th, uh, Bed, Bath, Bed Bath & Beyond was four bucks and change, $4.59. And it's now like nearly 12 bucks or $11.50. So you can just see what happens when you get into the spotlight of being a meme, a meme, sto- a meme stock. So Bed Bath & Beyond shot up 40% on Monday. Uh, off a record 120 million shares changing hands. And it was the second most bought asset on Fidelity's platform. And I, I, tell you, I was amused to see Yahoo Finance describe it as a 131% explosion so far in August. I've never heard of a stock appreciation being described as an explosion. And Bed Bath & Beyond spokesperson person or spokesman uh, Eric Mangan did not return Yahoo Finance's request for a comment uh, which has led me to believe he's the guy who wrote into us like <laughs> my Wall Street what the hell is happening here's concerned Bed Bath & Beyond so what we have to understand is in the stock market a short squeeze is a rapid increase in the price of a stock because of short selling as opposed to a business getting better and stronger and being more profitable and productive. So let me explain those two terms, which is short selling and short squeeze. So short sell, uh, short selling is when somebody borrows shares and immediately sells them, hoping to buy them back later, which is known as covering at a lower price. And this is done uh, via options on most full serve, service online brokerages. So that's short selling, shorting a stock. A short squeeze occurs when there is a lack of supply and an excessive demand for the stock due to short sellers having to buy stocks to cover their short positions, if you can follow me. Um, And what happened with Bed Bath & Beyond and AMC and all those other businesses we've discussed over the months and years was that on one of the favoured forums, is it Fora? On one of the favoured fora, there was um, energy put into pumping Bed Bath & Beyond. It was probably Wall Street Bets, something on Reddit. And um, and the voting public can see vulnerabilities in hedge funds and they move in. And that's what happens. So AMC, or sorry, I mean to say uh, Bed Bath & Beyond's fundamental business didn't change it, you know, changed by a week of trading activity, but not to the extent that it caused an explosion in its in its uh, productivity. Mm. 
So it's more of a distraction than anything else. And probably absolute a, distraction. Probably a word of warning for any investors listening that that's maybe not the best strategy is chasing these kind of gains. No way. Yeah. And by the time this episode comes out, the difference between recording and actually publishing, it'll probably have gone down to $4 again. <laughs> so as usually, as usually happens with this podcast. Oh, Mike, I must tell you now. So I, I rarely, very, very rarely participate in options because they have a third dimension, which is it's an event. You have to take a call by a certain date because options expire on a certain date. So all of a sudden it's back ended. You need to say the stock is going up or down by a certain date in the future, which is uh, far more analogous to a horse race, which is it ends when the horses cross the line or whatever. So uh, when I heard your podcast the week before last, the two of you were talking about that Hong Kong a- company. AMDT, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was like, get out. I went straight to my brokerage to see if I could short it because it was absolutely crackers, uh, but there were no uh, options available. No, so. I, d- I don't think you wanted to come near that or you'd have like an <laughs> SEC investigation into you. <laughs> It just seemed yeah. very, very dodgy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Before we get incriminated again, let's move on to uh, elevator pitch. I don't know how I say it again there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Anne-Marie, what company's on your watch list at the minute? I want to do a second pitch for Bark Industries, which was formerly called BarkBox. I did a first look for them man, like a year and a half ago, maybe when they initially spacked. Um, I really like mm. them. They're, they're an interesting company. They're a dog subscription service. They send out toys and treats and, and that type of thing. But they're also building in a, um, two new segments, which is Bark Brights and Bark Eats, which is like dog dental care and dog food. Um, I think there's a real gap in the market for that type of stuff. And I think um, that's a that's maybe a, a place where um, if you could get a strong foothold in someone's home, you might not face that much competition and then they'll use you for the rest of their dog's life. So, um, yeah, I'm very excited about them. And they just had a quarterly report yesterday and um, it looked pretty good. Mm. Yeah, we love uh, we love the pet care trend here in my Wall Street. So, mm-hmm. Amish, what have you been looking at? Yeah, actually, by the way, I was very excited when Henry told me earlier via Slack she's looking at BarkBox because that has been on my to-do list. So I'm going to pitch stock I've been keeping in line for a long time, which I think looks better than ever. And it's called Dexcom and its ticker is DXCM. And their mission is to empower people to take control of diabetes. And it's a big business. It's a $35 billion business. It's profitable. It's been around a while. And what they're looking at is a global crisis that remains uncontrolled uh, and being specific. So in the year 2000, 151 million people had um, a diagnosis of diabetes. And as of uh, last year, that 151 million had increased to 537 million, 537 million, a half a billion people in the planet had diabetes. And it's projected to keep growing at a very alarming rate. And the, the problem, apart from that being problem number one, intermittent glucose monitoring is not enough for proper intensive insulin management because your insulin needs to stay inside a range and traditionally the way you measure that just doesn't keep enough um it's just not sophisticated enough so basically what dexcom has is a a a device that you stick on your skin it warms up it's cheap it's easy to apply it's fully disposable and then your phone tells you is constant monitoring your blood sugar levels and they have a tremendous opportunity and a very nice product that i think is just going to be more and more future relevant very good. Okay. Um, both great companies, but I'm going to side with Amory because I don't want to be 
<laughs> Don't be looking foolish by trying to come up with questions to Dexcom right now. <laughs> I'm excited. I can't wait to hear what Amory has to say. I'm delighted to hear that. <laughs> right, lads. If you're listening to the free version of Stock Club, this is where we'll leave you today. If you want to find more about BarkBox and what we think of it as a potential investment, however, jump over to the My Wall Street app and you can listen to the rest of our conversation on the company. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.